Growing up, uh, I'm sure, like most of you, um, I, I, I had the opportunity, I, I learned some, some fire safety uh, training, right? Maybe the, the local firemen came to the, to the school, but I, I remember it to this day, um, the steps that I was to take should I find myself in a fire, should I find myself in danger. There were these three steps that I was given uh, growing up. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Stop, drop, and roll, right? So even to this day, we all know what to do if we find ourselves in the midst of a fire. We ought to stop, drop, and roll. Our, our writer to the, the Hebrews finds um, these, these Jewish believers in a, a dangerous uh, situation. He is concerned with their eternal souls, their, their, their proclivities to compare and entertain thoughts that they were missing something caused them to forget, to think that perhaps their old way of life was better. You know, you do realize that that is what suffering does. Persecutions and, and hard times bring about those types of thoughts. These Jewish Christians were beginning to experience what being a Christian was really about. But instead of staying, seeking to stay the course and, and pressing on the temptation to return to this old way of, of Judaism, their old life, began to sound uh, appealing. You know, this is not germane to the original readers of this, of this text. We struggle with these thoughts as well. We forget that Jesus told us to take up our cross and to follow him. And so, when the proverbial ball doesn't bounce our way, when, when suffering comes, when difficulties come, we entertain those, those, those same thoughts that these early Jewish Christians had. Like Israel in the wilderness, we think, perhaps it was better in Egypt. You know what? Those are dangerous thoughts. These, these Jewish Christians were in a dangerous Place. And so the, the writer to the Hebrews sets out to, to warn them. He wants to give them steps to help them uh, a fight against this, this temptation. He didn't, he didn't tell them to stop, drop, and roll. He didn't give them three steps, but he gave them four. And these were the four steps he, he sought to give these Jewish believers. And these are the steps, I think, that are, that are helpful for us as we seek to um, fight against the, the, the enticements of the world. He tells them to, to remember. He, he then moves on to tell them to consider, to consider Jesus. Then he tells them to compare and lastly, he says, hold fast, hold fast. Remember, remember, he starts off by reminding these Christians of who they are in Christ. Look at verse one. 
he says, therefore, holy brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I come across this designation in the scriptures that that says that Christians are holy, it just trips me up. It doesn't feel like I should be reading holy brothers and sisters. In in context, it it seems like I should be reading, therefore, knucklehead brothers and sisters. Therefore, stiff-neck, sinful brothers and sisters. Certainly not holy. Listen, when a brother or sister is in danger of, of leaving the faith and are acting as though they are not Christians, it seems like the last thing you would want to call them is holy. But the writer wants to remind his, his readers of who they are in Christ. That, that is the first step he gives them. Remember who you are in Christ. The, the, the New Testament writers use this, this tactic all the time. They remind believers of their, their new identity. In Christ, they are holy. Paul uses it in his letters when he was writing to the church at Philippi and, and in Corinth, and, and Peter includes it in his letters as well. But although it's common, it, 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 it's still startling nonetheless. It seems like this designation of holy should be reserved only for God and for God alone. He is the one who was other. He is the one who was set apart and, and distinct Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saw a, a glimpse of the glory of the Lord and he was left undone. He saw the, around the throne those calling out holy, holy, holy. Certainly holiness should only be reserved for God. Well, as I said, not according to the writers of the New Testament. Peter says in chapter 2 of his epistle in verse, in verse 9, but, but you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. According to, to how Peter refers to the church, indeed she is holy. But it is not an inherent holiness. It is a holiness that comes from being in union with Christ. It is a righteousness, not our own, but it is a righteousness that has been imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, Paul tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is an imputed righteousness given to us, not a righteousness our own. Christ took our sin and we got his righteousness. So what does that mean? It means that if you are trusting in Christ this morning, his perfect righteousness has been imputed to you. And you are holy. Your, your debt has been paid. Your account is full. 
You're accepted, brothers and sisters, in the beloved. You are no longer enemies of God. And you know what I get the privilege of doing this morning? I get the privilege of of standing before you and calling you saints. Holy ones. Holy ones. Not because of your righteousness, but because there has been a righteousness that has been imputed to you. Christ's sacrifice, his perfect obedience on your behalf, declares you holy. Sounds strange, doesn't it? (laughs) But however strange it sounds, if you are in Christ this morning, you indeed are holy. The writer just doesn't stop there. He reminds them that they share in a heavenly calling. There is, brothers and sisters, get this. The, the, the person who, the, 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 the person who, who walks down an aisle, who, 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 who sits uh, in their chair and quietly um, accepts Christ into their heart, trusts in Christ, the, the person who falls to their knees, they're not ultimately responding to the preacher. They're, they're not ultimately responding to the evangelist. They are responding to the call of God. It is God himself who woos them. John 10 and 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We, we can go to John, John 6 where, where Jesus says, no, no one comes to me, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. It is uh, this heavenly calling that the writer is referring to here is, is a wooing of God. We, we, we respond to God. Oh, these brothers and sisters who are in danger, needed to be reminded of this fact. We need to be reminded of this, brothers and sisters. This new identity, this this, this shared calling is God's doing. He is the one. He is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who calls us into this Relationship. Well, well, why is this so important? Why do we need to be reminded of this? Because if we are tempted to think our old way of life is better, be reminded that that old life was crucified with Christ. Be reminded that you and I share in a heavenly calling that has won your affections. Oh, these, these readers, these readers, these, these Jewish Christians needed to hear that they were saints. They, they were called by God. But here, here is the scary part. Here is the scary part. Even though they had been declared holy, Even though they shared in a heavenly calling, they were tempted to turn back. They were tempted to think that 
that their old life was better. They, had, they still had doubts about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you, this, this should uh, wake us up to the pull and the allure of this world. The, the enemy plays tricks on us. He, he, he schemes and, and he, he works to make us think that there is something greater than Jesus. He did it in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had everything they could have ever wanted. God told them, don't eat from from this tree. But the enemy played a trick on them. Caused them to think that they were missing out on something. Oh, the enemy, his, his tactics are still the same. He wants us to take our eyes off of Jesus. That is why what the writer says next is so crucial to fighting off the enticements of the evil one. You know what he says? He says, consider Jesus. In order to counter the drift that these Jewish Christians are making, he, the writer seeks to fix their gaze and their attention upon Jesus. The writer says, consider Jesus. I mean, that is a wonderful phrase. What a phrase. It's a stop you dead in your tracks type of statement. Consider Jesus. Oh, how instructive that is. The writer here does something that we see the scriptures doing over and over and over again. It is a perspective shift. It is a perspective shift. It is a reorientation of our gaze and our attention. Over and over again, the Bible commands us to direct our eyes or to to fix our minds or, or to give attention to. In other words, these are all ways in which it is telling us to consider Jesus. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Exhortation, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. As I studied this, as I looked at this, I realized how encouraging this is. That we are to over, always constantly be fixing our eyes, looking to Jesus. But he, he, here's the deal. We're not just to, to look to Jesus. I mean, we look at things all the time. We are to consider him. There's a difference between looking at something and considering something. Yes, we, we look to Jesus, but, but not only that, we are to consider him. That looks like meditating on him and, and, and studying him, reflecting on him. 
We are to have our affection stirred by him because when you consider Jesus, it changes your perspective. Listen to some examples. I know this has happened to us when we are tempted to complain, right? When we are tempted to complain or to give up in the midst of persecution, well, we can go to Hebrews 12 and 3 where it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a persecution, if I consider Jesus, I realize that he suffered so that I could endure this suffering. Perhaps you're tempted to defend yourself when you feel like you've been wronged or criticized. Well, I say to you, consider Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, we, we always, we always want to defend ourselves. When we have been wronged, we, we always want to retaliate. But in that moment, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus, who endured hostility, and didn't open up his mouth, and he entrusted himself to he who, judge, who judges justly. Mm. Consider Jesus. Consider him when you are tempted to trust in your own righteousness. To, to trust that, 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 that you are good enough to stand before a holy God in and of your own self. We can go to Titus 3 and 5 and 6 where he says he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, brothers and sisters, these believers, they, they had taken their eyes off Jesus. They, they, they failed to consider him, and they were in danger of turning back. Where is your gaze this morning? Where is it fixed this morning? I pray, that, I pray that the evil one hasn't tricked you into thinking that there is something better to look at than Jesus. Oh, consider him. Do you know how, how wonderful a strategy that is for counseling people? I know some of we, we say, oh, well, I don't like to counsel people because if they come to me with their issues, I don't know what to say to them. <laughs> right? I, don't, I don't know how to respond. Well, there's a strategy. Somebody comes to you with an issue, with a, with a trial, with a struggle, with a problem. Oh, yes, there is more that we can say. But how about, have you considered Jesus? I, 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 I encourage you to look at him, but, but think upon him. Go to his, the, the word and see what it says about him. 
Oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful way in which we can, we can counsel people. The writer exhorts these believers to remember, to consider Jesus. And then he says, how about we compare? How about you compare? We, 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 we love to make comparisons, don't we? <laughs> We, we make comparisons because we want to know uh, what or who is better. Uh, we all, as kids, right, when, when they were cutting the birthday cake, right, we, we got our piece. We looked at our piece. The immediate next step was to look at our brother's or sister's piece, right? Because we wanted to make sure that we got the bigger piece, right? My, my younger brother or sister can't get a bigger piece than me. I have to get the big piece. We, we love to compare. And so the writer, knowing the desires of, of these readers to compare their former way of life to this new way of life, says, okay, I'll play. <laughs> I'm in. I, I, I'll, I'll take you up on that. Never mind that he has just spent the first two chapters talking about the supremacy of Jesus. That, that he is greater than the angels. That he is greater than the, the prophets. But he now is going to really get a rise out of these Christians, out of these Jewish Christians. He says, let's, let's compare the faithfulness of Moses with whom, the, whom these, Jewish, these Jewish Christians would have adored. They would have held in high esteem and high regard. Let's compare his faithfulness with the faithfulness of Jesus. Mm. Scriptures, if you pay close attention, have quite a bit to say about faithfulness. And it is fitting, is it not, that the scriptures would talk a great deal about it. Given... That is how God has revealed himself to us. He revealed himself to, to Moses like that in Exodus chapter 34. Moses asks to, to see God and he hides him in the cleft of the rock and the great I am passes by and this is what he declares. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He revealed to Moses his hesed, his, his loving kindness, his, his covenant love and faithfulness. And throughout all of the scriptures, this is how we see God dealing with his people in covenant. He is always dealing with his people according to the covenant that he has made with them. We look at we look at Exodus 2 and we see the, 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 the children of Israel, the people of Israel languishing under Pharaoh in Egypt. And they are crying out to the Lord. And, and the scriptures say that God heard the cries of his people. It wasn't that he heard the cries of his people and helped them. It was that he heard the cries of his people and he remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham Isaac and Jacob. That's how God deals with his people. He deals through covenant. His 
faithfulness to them. Can't read scriptures. Can't read the scriptures and come away not understanding the faithful and covenant-keeping nature of God. It's just all over the pages. God is faithful, and so he rewards faithfulness. So, knowing that, God rewards faithfulness. The writer compares Jesus' faithfulness to Moses' faithfulness. Let's start with the faithfulness of Jesus. He says that Jesus was a faithful apostle. He was faithful in what he was sent to do. For that is what apostle means. It means messenger. Jesus was sent from God with a message. And, and, and what was that message? Well, we read about it in Mark 1 and 15. Jesus says, he says that he had, that the kingdom of God was at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came declaring the, uh, the plan of God, the plan that had been in place from the very beginning. So we see that he was faithful as an apostle, but he was also faithful as a high priest. These, these Old Testament roles that were dual, that were, they belonged to uh, uh, two different people, now were becoming one in Christ. High priest, Jesus was faithful not only to the message he was sent to carry, he was faithful to the task which he was set to complete. The high priest in the Old Testament was tasked with interceding for the people of God. They were to sacrifice a spotless lamb, shedding blood for the forgiveness of sins. And year after year, the high priest would enter the holies of holies to perform this sacrifice. That is, until Christ faithfully faithfully fulfilled his priestly office. I can't say it any better than what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. This is glorious truth right here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Oh, brothers and sisters, is that not glorious truth? Christ was faithful to fulfill the message he was sent to proclaim and faithful to the task he was appointed to carry out. But Moses was also faithful. (laughs) That is what the writer says in verse 2. He was faithful in all God's house. I think it'd be helpful at this point to remember that that Moses is no slouch. He's he's no pushover. Moses was the one who had led their forefathers out of slavery in Egypt. Moses would have been elevated in their eyes. You did not have to tell any God-fearing Jew that, that Moses was significant in their history. They adored Moses. He's the one that parted the Red Sea, met face to face 
with, with God. He received the, the Ten Commandments and, as the writer says here, faithfully served in God's house. And here's the deal. You realize that it wasn't the people that declared Moses faithful. God did that. God did that in Numbers 12 and 7. Aaron and Miriam are, are questioning uh, Moses and they're, they're jealous uh, um, uh, because he married a, a Cushite woman and they think that Moses is kind of acting on his own. And this is what God says. He calls them together. He says, you three, come here. And he says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The people didn't call Moses faithful. God called him faithful. God had tasked Moses with caring for his people. That is what is meant here by house. God is referring to his people, and Moses was obedient and full of faith. Hebrews 11 is littered with, with, the, with the works and the faithful acts of Moses. Moses is no slouch. He's no pushover. And one might get the impression that the way the author is talking, perhaps Moses is on par with, with Jesus. In, in fact, he uses language that Jesus was Faithful, just like Moses. So, so you hear that and you say, well, was, was Jesus and Moses on the same plane? Well, not so fast. The writer wants to call attention to the fact that although one might be, might, might be able to compare their faithfulness, when it comes to the glory or praise due them for their faithfulness, the comparison and the conversation ends there. Checkmate, game, set, match. It's over. There is no comparison. In order for his readers to get the, the full picture, um, the, the full understanding of this, he gives us an illustration. He talks about building houses. Now, the last time I checked... The last time I checked, houses don't build themselves. But, you know, sometimes the way we admire houses and buildings and things like that, the way we talk about them, we, we, we kind of think they do. We say, oh, look at this great house. Oh, this, this beautiful looking house. We give little attention or thought to who labored to build the house. What we are doing we are at that point giving more glory or more honor to the house rather than to the builder of the house. We admire the gift rather than the gift giver. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I, I, I know Moses was faithful. I know he was faithful. I know he is worthy of honoring and celebrating. But have you considered Jesus? When, when you compare him to Jesus, it doesn't compare. Ask Peter, James, and John if Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. 
They saw it. They saw it as they stood there in awe on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard the Father declare that Jesus was his son. They saw Jesus in all of his glory and they knew that Jesus' glory is unmatched. The writer told them that already in chapter uh, 1 and verse 3. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making for purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, there would have been no doubt among these Jewish believers that Yahweh was worthy of more glory than Moses. And so what the writer is doing, he's not putting Jesus on par with Moses. He's putting Jesus on par with Yahweh. The glory due the Father is also due the Son. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in, to the Corinthians, it is in the face of Jesus Christ that we behold the glory of God. Oh, this is what the writer is getting at. M- Moses and Jesus were both faithful in their roles. The roles that they were appointed to fill, but their roles were far different. Far different. Look at, look at what the text says in verse 5 in the first half of 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. <laughs> uh, the, the writer continues to drive the point home, Jesus, Jesus is better because he is the son of God. And if the son of God, then he is the creator. The house belongs to him. The house the writer is referring to here is the house Abraham was looking to. The writer in Hebrews 11:10 says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, you know, in essence, in essence, what the writer is saying here is that Christ's house and Moses, uh, this was this was Christ, this was Christ's house and Moses was just living in it. He was a servant. Christ's own the house. Moses was doing it faithfully. He was serving faithfully. But he was just a servant, a faithful servant. Jesus was the faithful son. Um, you know, um, my dad, uh, my dad is perhaps um, the most faithful man I know. You know I, I counted a, a blessing to have grown up in a, in a Christian home, and my dad uh, uh, worked as, a elect- as an electrician, a uh, commercial electrician in New York City um, for uh, over, 30, over 30 years. And he used to catch the train um, into the city. Uh, we live just north of the city. He, he uh, used to catch the train at 5.15 a.m. in the morning. 
And I, re- I don't ever remember or recall a day outside of taking family vacations and things like that that my dad called in sick or, or said, you know what, I don't feel like going in today. He was faithful to what he was called to. But he was also a, a, a faithful churchman. Every Sunday, without I could probably count on one hand how many times we missed church growing up. He was faithful to what he was called to do. I, 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 I am quite certain that we can all name someone among us who we know to be faithful. Men and women who have given their lives away for the sake of the kingdom. Please note that faithful service in the kingdom of God is worthy of honor. God has called us all to service in his kingdom. And we long to hear, I hope you long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, the writer is not saying that Moses' faithfulness was in vain or that we should not bother pursuing faithful service. Here's, here's the deal. We just, we just don't trust the faithfulness of Moses. <laughs> we, we don't trust the faithfulness of people. We, 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 we don't trust our own faithfulness. We trust the faithfulness of the Son. For he is the one who is over the house. Oh, don't, don't, don't miss that. I think the, the, the writer here is making a point. He says Moses was a servant, a faithful servant in the house of God. Was, past tense. He says Jesus is a son over the house of God, present tense. Jesus is still fulfilling his role faithfully. Later on, the writer says in verse 7, the former priests were many in number, but, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he is always, always, even now, lives to make intercession for them. Oh, oh brothers and sisters, this, this right here is so rich and is so important because of what the writer of our text says next. It's the last step in the process. He says, Hold fast. Hold fast. Look at the latter part of verse 6. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Oh, this, this house that Christ is over is the church. It's the bride of Christ. Or as Peter says in, in, in 1 Peter 2 and 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ builds and is over this house. And the writer says that we are part of that house if 
we hold fast our confidence. Conditional. Listen, listen, the Bible is not short on exhortations like this. God calls us over and over again in the scriptures to, to hold on, to stand firm, to remain, to abide, to be steadfast, to be unmovable, to press on. When the enticements of the world are pulling you, here is what the writer is telling us to do. He's telling us to remember. Remember who you are in Christ. He's telling us to consider Jesus, to realize that, that he is the only one worth looking at. He, 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 then, he then encourages us to compare what we think is better and realize that Jesus is in fact better. But then he tells us to Hold fast. In other words, he says, preserve, uh, um, persevere. Persevere. Hold on. Don't give in. Keep pressing on. You hold fast. But here is the wonderful reality. The writer tells us to hold fast. Do you realize that it is Jesus who holds you fast? It is the faithful son who is over the house that holds you fast. He's our confidence. He is our hope. We are part of the house because Jesus makes it so. The only reason you and I are able to persevere is because we have been preserved. Look, my grip is not strong enough. I can't hold on. I can't hold on the way I need to hold on. The only reason I'm holding fast is because Jesus is holding me. Oh, the the writer, I think, in... In, 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 in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, kind of just seals it. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There it is, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Oh, we can have confidence knowing that we are part of the house. Not because, not because we're holding Jesus fast, but because he's holding us fast. Jesus, as the writer says, is the author, the beginner, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Are you tempted this morning to to think that something is better? Are you you smelling smoke? Are you seeing signals and, and, and feeling the enticements and the pulls of this world? Oh, my exhortation to you this morning is to remember Remember who you are in Christ, that you're holy, that you're a saint, that you share in a heavenly calling, 
that you would consider Jesus, that, that you would not just look to him, but consider him and have your affections stirred by his goodness and his greatness and his, his supremacy, and that you would compare him to whatever else would come your way and that you would realize nothing else compares. And lastly, that you would hold fast. Oh, keep on. Keep pressing. Don't give in. Because you have been preserved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your word. For it is rich. It's full of wonderful truths. Truths that cause us to see Jesus afresh and to see him greater. We pray, we pray this morning for eyes and to behold him afresh. Help us to consider, to think, to have our affection stirred by him this, this morning. We, I do pray for those who are here, Lord, at a group this size. You know where everyone is. I wouldn't doubt that there were some that are tempted this very morning not to come. Who are, who are tempted to, to give in, Lord. I thank you that they were here this morning. And I pray that your word has penetrated their hearts. That, Holy Spirit, you would indeed hold them. Hold them fast, O oh God that they might persevere to the end. Oh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for allowing us to consider him this morning. Help us, O oh Lord, to remain faithful. And when we are not, thank you for the wonderful truth that you always remain faithful. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.